Good morning. So glad to have you here today as we're continuing in our series of messages from the Gospel of John. The message became flesh, and we're in these chapters 18 and 19 where that message is being delivered through the events and actions of Jesus in the cross. Uh, we had an art invitational a few years back where we asked people to submit works of art, and we even gave some prizes to the top three. Uh, we titled the theme for the Invitational, The Death of God. And we did it to coincide with when I was wrapping up my series of messages from the Gospel of Mark so that we would be uh, preaching through uh, the crucifixion and death of Jesus. And I remember I, I created an image to promote the Invitational, and I, I kind of deliberately tried to do something different from what a lot of times you will see in uh, depictions in art of the crucifixion. I'm, I'm not a fan of many depictions of the crucifixion because I think they put the emphasis in the wrong thing. Uh, a lot of uh, these paintings try to uh, elicit, I think, from the viewer a sense of empathy for Jesus by stressing his suffering. And Jesus is painted as very gaunt, almost uh, skeletal sometimes, and his face contorted in agony. And I'm not suggesting that he was not suffering on the cross. But I, when I read, especially John, when I read God, John's description of the cross, I don't get the idea that Jesus was this victim. I get the idea that God Almighty was effecting the rescue of the cosmos. And uh, I, in, in my mind, Jesus on the cross is not this gaunt, pathetic figure. Jesus on the cross is uh, somebody with uh, utter determination. And he is paying for the sins of the world and willingly hanging on that cross until it is fully finished and rescuing creation. So let's look at how John tells us of the death of Jesus. I've titled today's message, Saving the Cosmos. And we're in John chapter 19, verses 23 through 30. Let's start with 23. So the soldiers, when they crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts, a part for each soldier, also the tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven top to bottom in one piece. So they said to one another, we should not split it up, but we should cast lots for it to see who gets it, so that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, they divided my garments among them. And over my clothing they cast a lot. So the soldiers did these things. We arrive at the moment of crucifixion. John is the only gospel writer that indicates how many soldiers were involved in the crucifixion of Jesus. Matthew tells us that after crucifying him and casting lots, they, they stay there to watch over the bodies. So uh, this is a, a group of four soldiers. The normal smallest unit of Roman soldiers was eight, so this is half of one of those smallest units. And John says that they took Jesus' personal belongings because a person was crucified stark naked. 
That's the way the Romans did it. It was meant to be humiliating. It was meant to make a public spectacle, not only of your agony and death, but of your public humiliation before the whole world. So uh, everything was taken, and the soldiers had the right to divvy up whatever possessions uh, were left behind by the deceased. And John tells us they put it into four different parts. They separated out into four piles, one for each. So four soldiers. But there's this one item, the tunic. And this, it's hard to find a good word in English for this because we don't dress the way they did. The tunic was basically a, a long sleeveless shirt that was worn over the loincloth. So it's not underwear, underwear is not good, but it's kind of an undergarment because it would be this thing without sleeves that runs down to here. And then on top of that, you would put on something with sleeves that you might leave open. Uh, so uh, it's not quite underwear, it's not really a shirt, uh, it's too long for what we would think of as a sleepless shirt, but that, that's the item. And the thing that's unique about this, uh, and not, I mean, this isn't the only example, I'm sure uh, people did this in antiquity, but they had taken the care to weave this thing uh, in a cylindrical way so that top to bottom it was just woven as one solid piece. There were no seams on it. Normally, you just take a piece of cloth, two pieces of cloth, and you sew them at the seams here, and that's how you make a shirt. Uh, they didn't do it this way. They wove the whole thing top to bottom uh, as, a, as a tube, as a cylinder. Uh, so they're debating. You know, that, that kind of makes it a little more valuable, uh, a little more worth hanging on to the way it is. Now, if they're going to say, let's divide it up, it's kind of like Solomon and the women debating about the child. If you chop it in two, that's really not a good solution. If you chop this nicely woven single piece of tunic into four pieces, you have four rags. Uh, but if you don't, you have a nice piece of clothing. So uh, they say, let's, we've got our four piles, let's just cast lots, and one of us will get in addition to his pile, we'll get this specific item, the tunic. It's interesting, you know, the soldiers are doing all of this. They're just going about their business, right? That's what soldiers do. They had to crucify, they crucified, they have to watch over, they divvy up the stuff, they have to sit around and make sure nobody takes the bodies off the cross. They're doing their job, they're going through the motions, and they're just doing what they happen to think of naturally. But John points out to us that what they're doing is actually fulfilling Scripture. John is the only one who quotes this verse. All of the Gospels tell us about the casting of lots. But John's the only one that actually quotes from Psalm 22. Now Psalm 22, uh, Jesus himself quoted it on the cross. The opening words of Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a psalm of David in which David is expressing to God his sense of abandonment and his sense of uh, despair as he is surrounded by enemies who are uh, seeking to destroy him and take his life and he's asking God for deliverance. And the psalm ends with David expressing confidence that God will vindicate him. God will raise him up. And not only will he praise God, but the ends of the earth will all join and praise God. David was thinking of his own circumstances as he wrote that psalm. But God inspired the words of this song. 
in such a way that there would be a connection between the experiences of King David and his life over a thousand years before and the life of Jesus, the descendant of David, the son of David, the promised Messiah. And very rightly, Psalm 22 is understood as a messianic psalm, a psalm in which the events of David's life are going to correspond with the events of the life of the Messiah coming later. So that this that probably David is uh, kind of throwing up uh, poetically. They've divided my garments among them. They've cast uh, a lot over my clothing. He's probably just being poetic. I doubt that exactly is what happened to him. Uh, but there are moments in his life when people plundered his stuff and took it away and he had to go, re go retrieve it. But notice in the case of Jesus, this is happening with exact precision so that actually both of these things are happening. Not only did they divide his garments up into four piles and give one to each, but they actually took one item and cast a lot over it so that only one of them got that particular item. That's what the psalm says. They divided my garments among them and over my clothing they cast a lot. And John wants to point out to us that what's happening here on the cross is not just a tragedy. And some people historically have been saying this, you know, the Jesus quest and all this. One of the things that theologians for a couple of centuries now have been saying over and over is Jesus uh, thought he was the Messiah, he thought he was all of this, but then it all fell apart because he ended up being killed by the Romans. And he thought uh, he had it all figured out, but he was wrong and tragically... This good teacher and guy got killed by the Romans. That's the way a lot of people want to read the historical events here. But if we take the word of those who were actually next to Jesus at the foot of the cross as he was dying, that's not at all what happened. Jesus was going through exactly what God had said was going to happen. And God had laid out this perfect plan and every step of the way, everything was happening exactly the way God had said it would happen. So that even people who knew nothing about the Bible, who knew nothing about God's promises or the prophecies or uh, the Psalms of David, these soldiers were clueless to all of that. They were just doing life. Even they are exactly lining up with what God needed to happen so that everything would happen just the way he had said it would happen. These four soldiers who kept Jesus' clothing had no idea. They didn't know at all that they were fulfilling prophecies from more than a thousand years before. How does it affect you to realize that God works his good plans even through the unwitting acts of those who don't even know him? I want, you to, I want to remind you of that thought when we head into election season again. Verse 25. But standing by Jesus' cross were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Then Jesus, seeing his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, says to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he says to the disciple, Behold your mother. 
And from that hour, the disciple received her into his own home. There are a couple of interesting things to ponder about this list of women at the feet of the cross. All of the Gospels tell us that there were women at the feet of the cross. Three of the Gospels give us names. Luke doesn't mention names. But Matthew, Mark, and John mention names of people. And uh, here, John is the only one who lists four, I believe. Now, here's, here's the debate. So he says, his mother and his mother's sister. So... The next thing in the list is Mary, the wife of Clopas. So some people say, well, then is he saying that Mary's sister was named Mary and she was married to a guy named Clopas? In that case, we're talking about three people. Uh, I think there are good reasons to, to believe that's not the case, that, that John is listing four people, because that would mean that Mary and her sister had the same name. Now, you know, the, you know, this is my brother, what is it, Daryl, and this is my other brother, Daryl. You know, that, that people don't do that. Not even back then was it the, the custom to name your two daughters the same thing. You'd give each one their own name. Uh, so it would be very odd for Mary, the mother of Jesus, to have a sister who's also called Mary. Um, so I, I do think that he's listing four people, the mother of Jesus, Mary, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So I've put up a little chart. Let me compare what we have in the three Gospels that mention names. First of all, John is the only one that mentions the mother of Jesus. So that's, he has four, the others have three. Uh, but I do think the other three correspond across the three Gospels, likely. Uh, one is unmistakable. All three say Mary Magdalene, so that, that's easy. We, we know that's the same person. Uh, there's also, uh, in each of the lists, uh, someone by the name of Mary that is not the mother of Jesus. So I think those three Marys are probably the same person. Matthew calls it Mary, the mother James of Joseph. Uh, Mark calls him Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and Joseph. Uh, but clearly those two are the same person. And John lists a Mary, and he doesn't talk about who she was the mother of. She talks about who she was the wife of, the wife of Clopas. So I think it's likely that those three represent the same person. This Mary was both mother of James and Joseph and also married to Clopas. And then we have this last one. In Matthew, the listed person is the mother of the sons of Zebedee. James and John. John, the guy who is writing this gospel. Mark uh, has instead a name, Salome. And John has the other person we haven't identified, Mary's sister. Now, why would I think that those three are the same? Well, in Matthew and Mark, they're very parallel, so it seems they're kind of in the same position. It seems like we're talking about the same person. We're just describing her differently. Uh, why would Mary's sister be the the Salome, or uh, the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Well, it also corresponds with something John does in his gospel. In his whole gospel, he never mentions himself by name. He never mentions his brother James by name. And uh, I think this is because when John is writing his gospel, it's late in the first century. It's likely that at that point he's the last surviving apostle. And there's probably been more and more attention given to him as some important figure. And I think he's at, at uh, going to great lengths in writing this gospel to draw attention away from himself and to Jesus. He doesn't want to become the substitute of Jesus for his readers. He wants his readers to fully focus their attention on Jesus. So he deliberately only names himself in terms of what he is because of Jesus. He is the disciple whom Jesus loved.
And that's the only way he's going to talk about himself in the gospel. Uh, so again, as part of uh, that attempt to keep the focus on Jesus, uh, it may be that John here is mentioning his mother, but does not want to mention her by name, does not want to call attention to her unduly in all of this. It would make sense if John himself is there, that his mother could have been there with him. It also makes sense, if you think about it, uh, why if this would mean then that John and James would have been cousins of Jesus, first cousins. That might explain their confidence in coming to Jesus and requesting positions of privilege in his kingdom at the right and left hand of him, maybe a little bit of nepotism there, and perhaps that's why if uh, their mother was Jesus' aunt, maybe that's why she felt confident to go up to Jesus and say, hey, how about you plug my two kids in in your kingdom? Um, so it is very possible, we, there's no way to know with certainty, but it is very possible that John himself is Jesus' cousin. And these are the, the people there at the foot of the cross. And what is going on in all of this? These people are there, and Jesus actually interacts with them. He addresses his mother and says, Woman, behold your son. Now, in our culture today, you call, you'd address your wife or your mother as woman. Uh, that's not considered respectful in our, in our society. But in, in the first century Judaism, it was a, a, a sign of respect. In fact, of great respect to the point that some people say, some scholars suggest this is too formal uh, to address her as woman as opposed to mother. Uh, might be uh, too formal, but maybe given the situation, it makes sense that he would do that. Uh, an address of of, of respect to his mother because he is doing something right now. He says, woman, behold your son, and he indicates this disciple whom Jesus loves, John. And he turns to John and says, behold your mother. And uh, Jesus, uh, from the Gospels, there's no mention of the father of Jesus, Joseph, Mary's husband. There's no mention of him at all uh, past the infancy narratives. So it does seem that once Jesus starts his public ministry, his father has already passed away. Joseph is no longer part of the picture. So his mother is likely widowed at this point, probably in her early 50s at this point in her life. And very much in the ancient world, you needed a family to take you in. If you were a, a widowed woman of this age, you needed somebody to take you in and provide for you. Now, up until this point, Jesus, as the firstborn son, would have been responsible for his mother. But he knows uh, he's not going to be able to fulfill that role any longer. So he is entrusting her care to somebody else. Now, we also know from the Gospels that Jesus had brothers and sisters. We know that at least two of them wrote books of the Bible, James and Jude. So why didn't he entrust his mother to his siblings? Well, we're also told in the Gospels that uh, Jesus' siblings did not believe in him. They uh, thought he was an embarrassment. They kept trying to call him back, you know, stop running around doing all this. Just come home and stop embarrassing the whole family. They did not believe in him until after the events of the cross. 
And I think Jesus is aware that it's only a few days from now that Pentecost is coming. And he is about to do something amazing. The prophecy of Joel 2 is going to be fulfilled. God is going to pour out his spirit on humankind and give the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he wants his mother to be able to participate in that. He doesn't want her way off in Galilee with siblings who have no interest in in the the life of following after Jesus. He wants her to be with a disciple at this moment. Eventually, like I said, two of Jesus' brothers at least will come to faith, but that's not the situation right now. So I think it's because of that that he entrusts his mother to the care of John because he knows John as a disciple is going to be a part of everything that's going on and he wants his mother who has been a faithful servant to God and obedient to God's call in her life. He wants her to be participant in all of this and is looking out not just for her provision physically but for her uh, ability to participate fully in the blessings that he is about to accomplish in his death. Sometimes we may feel that God is unconcerned about the struggles we face. Jesus on the cross was constantly uh, dealing with the, the difficulties of other people. If there's ever a moment in his life when we could have said, Jesus, you know, right now we understand it if you don't have time to worry about us. You're in the middle of dying for us. We get it. We'll get back to you at a better moment. But on the cross, consider how many people he reaches out to. He tells the women who are wailing as he's making his way to the cross, don't weep for for me, weep for yourselves because these are dark moments and you find yourselves caught up in them. When he's hung on the cross, he prays to the Father, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And as the criminals on either side of him are debating back and forth and he's being harassed by everybody the criminals included finally one of them wakes up and says wait a minute this isn't right and he corrects the other criminal and says you should not be saying that we deserve to be here but this guy has done nothing wrong and he turns to Jesus and says Jesus remember me when you come into your kingdom and from the cross Jesus pronounces eternal life to him truly I say to you Today you will be with me in paradise. Every moment on the cross, Jesus was dealing with the needs of those around him in the most trying and extreme possible of circumstances. So how does the way Jesus cared for Mary as he was hanging on the cross give us a truer picture of God's commitment to care for us? Verse 28, after this, since Jesus knew that now all things had been completed, so that the scripture might be fulfilled, he says, I am thirsty. There was a jar set down full of sour wine, so they brought a sponge full of the sour wine placed on a hyssop branch to his mouth. When Jesus received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and bowing his head, He yielded the spirit. So John tells us that at this moment, after completing everything that had to be completed, Jesus knows that everything is done. 
It's been fulfilled, finished. We have reached the end goal that we were meaning to achieve. And Jesus is aware that the moment has arrived where he has done everything that he has to do before dying. There's one final thing, one bit of scripture that he's going to make sure is fulfilled. So he says, I am thirsty. Now, John doesn't spell out for us what scripture Jesus was referring to, uh, but the events that take place, there's this uh, jar with sour wine. Normally that was uh, just a very cheap wine watered down that the soldiers would have there in case they were thirsty. Um, they put it on a sponge, use a hyssop branch to raise the sponge up to his mouth. He receives the sour wine. Uh, some people suggest that he's talking about Psalm 69:21, which says this, they gave me poison for food and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. That also, by the way, is a psalm of David. Another messianic point of connection between David and the son of David. And it's another psalm where David is crying out to God. He feels like he's smothering. The water is up to my neck. I'm drowning in the deep. And he's calling to God to rescue him. And he even describes it as a descent into the, the bowels of the earth. And uh, that very much tracks with exactly what Jesus is going through right now. He is descending into the place of the dead. He is about to die. And in that psalm, we find that uh, verse as David is complaining to God about how he's been treated by those around him, how they've given him not the good things he needed, but the sour and bitter and poisonous things. Uh, and again, in this psalm, like in Psalm 22, David ends by announcing to the world that God is going to vindicate him and that the result will be that the whole earth will praise God and thank him for his glory. And that's exactly what Jesus is accomplishing in this very moment. Again, fulfilling every bit, every, every detail of God's rescue plan. And once he has completed everything he had to do, and I want you to think about this. Jesus said, I could call down ten legions of angels and put a stop to this right now. That means that as Jesus hung on the cross, he had to choose to stay there until the moment of his death. He could have stopped the whole thing at any moment. But he didn't. He hung there until the last bit had been done, until the sin of the world was extinguished and the full wrath of God was burnt out on him. And it's only at that moment that he raises his voice and says, It is finished. It's done. I think sometimes we get a, a mistaken picture uh, and think that somehow the cross was, was the first victory, but that we're waiting, we're waiting for Christ's return when he's really going to lay the hammer down, and that's when he's going to come back and, and defeat all the forces of evil. And I think that's a complete misunderstanding. The moment Jesus breathed his last 
Sin and death were crushed. And the victory was absolutely won. There's nothing left to do. It is finished. That word there has uh, the root telos. The end as in the final goal of a thing. We have arrived at the end of it all. The whole grand redemption plan of God is done. And everything that needed to be accomplished, I have accomplished. It is finished. And he bows his head and yields the spirit. Jesus said, no man takes my life. I lay it down. He had to choose to die. Life could not be taken from the one who is life. But he yields the spirit. And uh, embraces death for us all. Completes the plan. Jesus gave his life to rescue the cosmos from sin and death. Let me ask you to ponder that for a moment. How has this affected your life? What's been the impact of this grand cosmic victory in your life? God had promised centuries upon centuries earlier that he would bring a descendant of David who would suffer greatly but would be vindicated, raised up and he would become the reason all the nations of the earth would celebrate God's salvation and his glory. God kept the promise. He came to us himself. God the Son sent from God the Father into the world to redeem it all. He came into the world to die for the sins of the world. And the cross was not just a tragic, unjust execution. An agonizing death inflicted on an innocent man. The cross was an offering. Jesus offered himself up for the sins of the world. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he stayed the course. Knowing he could have called it off at any moment, he stayed the course until he had accomplished redemption by his death. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And if you will trust yourself to him, if you will put your faith in him and follow after him, he will take your sins as well. He will give you the gift of his spirit and he will give you the promise of eternal life. We're going to sing a song and it's your time to respond to what God has done and what he's told you about what he's done. If you don't know Jesus the way I'm talking about, if you don't know him as your Savior and Lord, I want to challenge you today to not put that off any longer, but to say, this is the day I'm going to surrender my life to Jesus. 
Let me ask you to stand. We'll have people on either side here at the back. If that's the decision you need to make today, make your way to either one of these sides at the back and take the hand of of someone there and tell them this is uh, what God's laid on your heart. And they'll help you. They'll guide you uh, to pray and to ask Jesus for forgiveness and to take your life. Please come while we sing.